Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dorothy Koshu, and I'm the host of the Benefits Executive Roundtable podcast, and I'm the Vice President of Communications for the California Association of Health Underwriters. I'm here today with Dr. Wendy Kohling from Kaiser Health, who's going to be sharing with us some thoughts on telehealth and how it's been used during, obviously, the COVID-19 public health emergency, as well as their thoughts on the future of telemedicine. Thank you, Dr. Kohling, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. This is really wonderful. Thanks for doing this. Well, I have some questions in general, and, and I think the general public would like to know about this because obviously we were all kind of thrown into this world of telemedicine. Um, even though health plans offered it in the past, we were thrown into this. Uh, as a doctor, you've probably done it before, but some of us, this is brand new to us. So obviously during the pandemic, people were forced to stay home and some needed to be screened for COVID-19 or other illnesses that came up. Um, the CDC obviously informed us uh, all to not go to the doctor's office, not go to urgent care, don't go to the emergency room unless it's absolutely necessary. Of course, they wanted to keep people safe. And they encouraged uh, us to contact our doctors by telephone and using telemedicine instead, which again is somewhat new to us, those of us, at least people like me. Um, So although we had telemedicine before, it really has boomed because of COVID-19. So as a doctor, could you have anticipated this kind of demand for telemedicine? Well, I, like most doctors, knew that telemedicine was coming, but I never would have anticipated how quickly we would have had to convert to mostly telehealth in the first several weeks of the pandemic. In Kaiser Permanente, we'd already started having phone, video, and e-visits in the past several years, but the pandemic rapidly made telemedicine the majority of our visits. Yeah, it's, it was pretty crazy. I don't know how you did it, to be honest. So, <laughs> tell us about the doctor-patient relationship when using telemedicine. Can it be as effective as personalized you know, in-person visits? You know, it's amazing how much we can still connect with patients through telemedicine. Although we're limited without being able to see body language and facial expressions and phone visits, we can still connect by listening, using empathetic statements, and other expressions of understanding. Additionally, with video visits, we can see facial expressions and body language, which really help. We've actually had to adapt to the expanding telemedicine environment by adjusting the skills that we've learned over the years during our in-person visits to make them more suitable for virtual medicine. For example, we're having to take longer pauses to make sure the patients are done talking. We're having to restate some of the patient's comments to make sure that we understood what they were asking or saying. And then we're having to be really clear with our summarizing of the instructions at the end of the visits. Of course, these are all things that are helpful with any visit, even in-person visits, but we have to be more deliberate with them during our virtual visits. Yeah, I can imagine. What are the difficulties in diagnosing during a telehealth visit, do you have limitations? Some of the limitations are what you'd expect, not having vital signs or a physical exam. It can sometimes be difficult to determine how sick a patient is based solely on what he or she's telling you. For example, patients with viral respiratory illnesses will often say they feel short of breath. Over the phone, you may be able to hear if they're winded or having trouble completing sentences, which could either reassure you or raise red flags. 
If you're able to do a video visit, you're gonna get a little bit more information to give you a rough idea of their respiratory rate by watching the rising and falling of their chest, as well as seeing if they're gasping for breaths. You can also see if they look anxious, like they may be struggling to breathe or showing skin discoloration from lower levels of oxygen. If you are with the patient in person, you will have the clues that I've already discussed, but you will also have vital signs, especially a pulse oximetry reading to check how well they are getting oxygen and a lung exam. With that said, in medical school, we're taught about 75% of our medical diagnoses can be made from history alone. In other words, what the patient's telling you. Although there will be some limitations by not having the vital signs, the physical exam, the lab, radiology, and other studies, we can still diagnose and treat a lot of patients safely through telemedicine. And the COVID-19 pandemic has made us realize more and more what conditions we can safely and appropriately address through virtual care. So it doesn't sound like it was all that bad. It seems like it was a learning curve for all of us, obviously. And, you know, to me, I I applaud you doctors because I honestly don't know how you could adjust so quickly. You said it was difficult at the beginning, and and of course it had to have been. Uh, How are the patients responding to telemedicine? So generally, patients love the option of telemedicine, especially the phone visits. They require no additional technology or training. They're very convenient. There's no travel and they can often be done without missing work. Although we expected video appointments to be very popular among patients, initially the uptake of these was slower. Video visits generally require a smartphone or a computer and some of our patients don't have access to this technology. If they do have the technology, they may not know how to use them or they're not as confident in their technology skills enough to try a video visit. So in these situations, especially during the pandemic, our staff have tried to prep the patient ahead of time with what to expect and how to manage the technology. And we've been pleased that after their first video visit, most patients find that it was a lot easier than they expected, and they're happy to try one in the future. Well, that's that's good. That's a relief, actually, I can imagine. But obviously, you're a doctor, not a technology specialist, and you've been talking about what it was like for the patients. But what about you as a doctor? You know, wasn't an adjustment learning yourself how to use the technology involved with telemedicine? It was definitely an adjustment, but in our organization, we've been working with telehealth for the last several years, so it's been a a more gradual learning experience for me and for my colleagues. Um, It's definitely trial and error. (laughs) You figure out what works well in certain situations and what doesn't, and it has become easier with time. Yeah. Did you have any technical mishaps during any telehealth visits? Was there a learning curve to that? I mean, I can just imagine. I mean, I would be completely, you know, dealing with the computer and going, oh, my gosh, what am I doing here? I mean, I'm just curious. Was that difficult? I think it's hard to work with technology without there being some mishaps. Uh, With video visits especially, there can be technical issues on either my side, the physician side, or the patient side. And the thing that always brings me um, comfort is that if worse comes to worse, we can convert it over to a phone visit. And generally, everybody can manage the phone visit just fine. There is a learning curve. The more that I do telemedicine and the more the patients do telemedicine, the better that we're all getting at becoming kind of our own IT specialist. Of course, we have our own IT support, but over time you learn to troubleshoot a lot of the technical problems on your own. Yeah, I can imagine that wasn't easy at all. Well, what's the difference in the volume between obviously pre-COVID-19 and since the beginning of COVID-19 as far as telehealth visits? I'm imagining that it's just been astronomically you know, popular since then. 
Sure. In early March of this year, the vast majority of our visits were face-to-face. When the pandemic really started to affect the United States and there were local and statewide stay-at-home recommendations in mid-March of this year, our operations were essentially flipped upside down within a two-week period, and we were seeing over 90% of our primary care visits virtually. Wow. As the stay-at-home recommendations were lifted, more safety precautions regarding social distancing and masking were put into effect, and our patients became more comfortable leaving their homes. We've seen a gradual increase in them either wanting face-to-face or feeling more comfortable coming back in for face-to-face visits. But we're still continuing to see a lot more telemedicine than we did prior to the pandemic. Yeah, I can imagine. And I know you you probably can't give me an, an exact number, and I wouldn't expect you to because this is something that, you know, obviously the, the IT people deal with and not you. But how many televisits per day on average are you involved in? I mean, is, is, is this about normal? I'm, I'm guessing this is normal for physicians now, but what kind of volume are you seeing? Sure, sure. Well, as you can imagine, the amount of phone and video appointments are going to vary depending on the specialty and the type of appointment. But in primary care in Orange County, California, where I work, since the pandemic started, we've generally been doing either all virtual or all face-to-face appointments in any given half day, rather than having a mixture of telemedicine and face-to-face during that same period um, during the day. So when we are doing telemedicine in our regular primary care clinics, we can generally have up to 14 appointments in a half day, which include both telephone and video appointments. And if we're doing same day or lower acuity telehealth visits, um, we can have up to 15 to 20 telehealth visits in a half day. Now, in some areas outside of where I work, doctors will see a mixture of both telehealth and face-to-face in a half day. And in those cases, there may only be a few telehealth visits mixed in with in-person visits during the day. And from what I've heard, I think the variations I've described are relatively typical volumes for telehealth and primary care physician schedules currently. Well, that's that's a lot of patients in a day. That's a lot of patients, especially when you're dealing with technology. Like you said, some things, it seems like, you know, Murphy's Law always kicks in and, and at least once a day, I would think there's something that d- doesn't quite go according to plan, but uh, that's a lot. What about the future? Um, hopefully the not too distant future when the public health emergency is over, do you think the popularity of telemedicine will continue? Um, I would say from my perspective, telemedicine's here to stay. Both the patients and the physicians seem to really appreciate it. The pandemic has forced both the physicians and patients to expand their way of thinking about what can safely be diagnosed and treated with telemedicine. Although there are certainly still conditions that are going to require in-person evaluation, we are learning more and more ways to safely address our patients' concerns and conditions through telemedicine. What about, it? obviously, when COVID-19, when this is over, hopefully it'll be over soon, um, what kind of treatment and visits can you expect telehealth to be used for in the future? It'd almost be easier to say what telemedicine couldn't be used okay. for. <laughs> As we get more and more comfortable with telemedicine, I'd say we're realizing that conditions and diagnoses that we previously thought should not or could not be addressed through telemedicine 
can now be treated safely through telemedicine. If it can't be completely treated through telehealth, then sometimes the telehealth visit with a doctor is the first step and may be followed up with a nurse visit to check vitals or collect a test such as a throat swab to rule out strep throat. The telehealth visit can also be the first step in getting the patient to the right clinical setting, such as the primary care office versus the emergency room. So as we're getting more and more experience with telehealth, we're realizing the important role it's going to play moving forward in healthcare overall. Do you see this as an opportunity to possibly reduce healthcare costs in the future if more visits can be moved to telehealth? So I'd say it's a little challenging to say exactly where we're going to end up when the current situation with the pandemic stabilizes and we start to return to our new normal. Most of us in healthcare think there will be a greater percent of telehealth in the overall appointment volume permanently, but no one knows exactly what percent of the volume this is going to be. There are potential cost savings in building infrastructure and staffing with telehealth. With that said, as we're doing more telemedicine, we are finding that physicians still need support in virtual medicine, although how this looks may be different. As we get to a better steady state with what percent of healthcare visits will be virtual in the long term, I think we're going to have a better sense of what the potential healthcare cost savings will be. Are there things you'd like to tell patients before they have a telehealth visit? Um, Is there anything to better prepare them for the telehealth visit to make it a more effective visit? Yes, definitely. Um, First of all, to make the most of your visit, try to have all the medications you're taking and the doses handy prior to your visit. This is really going to help save time to your visit so you can make the most of it. Also, if you have any type of rash or skin lesion, it's ideal if you can take a picture of it and send it to your doctor if you have the ability to email or send them secure messages. Often the quality of a picture is going to be better than the picture quality during a video visit. And this will also help make the most of your visit. You know, I wouldn't have even thought of that, uh, taking a picture ahead of time and, and, and sending it ahead of time through a secured, um, you know, email or something like that. Um, I wouldn't have even thought of that. That's something that, you know, I, I guess that, that makes a lot of sense because you're right. When you're on a screen, on a Zoom screen or something, the quality is not that great. It's not like it's high definition. Um, and, and, you know, they w- might not know how to zoom in on it or something like that. I, I wouldn't have even thought of that. Exactly. And it can really help you get to a diagnosis faster. Additionally, if there's a dermatologist or other specialist that we may need to share it with, it's helpful to have a nice quality picture that we can send them. Yeah. And finally, in preparation for your visit, if you have multiple conditions or concerns that you'd like to address, let the doctor know right at the beginning of your appointment and let him or her know what's the highest priority item for you. If you have multiple concerns, it's possible that it may require some follow-up visits, but knowing what is of greatest concern to you is going to help the doctor prioritize the different concerns. Yeah, that's very helpful. I would imagine that would be great for the patient as well, though. So this has been wonderful information, great information. Thank you so much. I learned some things today, and I've been in this business on the health insurance side for quite some time, so it's, it's always nice when I can pick up something new from a podcast as well. So thank you. I really appreciate your time today, and thank Thank you for also letting me be your first host for your first podcast visit. That's uh, to me, that's that's an honor. So I thank you very much for doing that. And I guess I should say, stay safe, stay healthy, and of course, thrive. Right? <laughs> Isn't that what I'm yes, supposed to say? <laughs> yes. Thanks so much for having me. Exactly. We want everyone, all the listeners and yourself to stay healthy and thrive. Thank you very much. <laughs> Take care. Thank you.
Welcome, everyone, to the Benefits Executive Roundtable podcast on telehealth, and this is a part two of our podcast. I have with me today Eric Cronengold, the Executive Director of Teladoc Health. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. Great. Well, I'm going to jump right into it because I know everyone's time is limited, and especially we're all so crazy busy right now, especially I can imagine your company is probably going crazy with everything that's been going on since COVID-19. So I'm just going to jump right into the questions, if you don't mind. Um, obviously, COVID-19 forced us to do a lot of things differently since March, and a lot of people were afraid, including myself. I didn't really want to go see a doctor. I didn't want to go anywhere. I stayed in my home. I just stayed you know, in front of my computer for months and didn't, didn't move except to go to the grocery store or go to the bank or something. So a lot of people were afraid to go to their doctor, their mental health provider, or other types of providers. And early on, the CDC guidelines said, don't go in. Call your doctor. Call your urgent care center. Call the emergency room if you have any symptoms. You know, get directions from them as to what to do. Uh, don't go into the doctor's office. We want to keep the... We want to keep the emergency rooms clear, the doctor's office is clear. We don't want to expose anyone to the virus. Um, so that made things a little interesting for people that did not have telemedicine provisions, you know, in place at the time. Obviously, some of the doctor's offices and some of the uh, larger health plans and so forth had their own telemedicine um, systems in place, but others didn't. Um, Again, many fully insured plans have those provisions, but self-funded plans, for example, may not. And maybe people didn't opt in for the fully insured provisions within their health plan. So everybody's all of a sudden scrambling for something called telemedicine, which they may have heard of, but hadn't really experienced until COVID-19. So can you tell us what kind of, to start with, what kind of, I'm assuming you had some major business boom since COVID-19. Tell us a little bit about that. And um, did a lot of plans start adding formal telemedicine providers? And if so, is this still growing? Tell us about it. Yeah, that's a great question. So my company I work for is Teladoc, and we, we've always been the market leader. We were the first in the space um, going on 16 years now, um, over 70% of the market share. What happened during COVID was unprecedented, though, because from a growth standpoint, so we had set ourselves up um, from a network standpoint and from a um, just an overall clientele, many different channels to get to to Teladoc, um, and every channel has has just exploded in growth. So what happened when COVID hit? Like you mentioned, there were plenty of um, employer groups and, and uh, individuals, carriers, whatever the the different type of organization, they were raising their hand and saying, "Hey, we need we need telemedicine. We need and we need it now." So a few different things happened. One. Um, a lot of our groups um, came on because we're not actually an insurance product that they actually came on um, mid-cycle so we didn't have to wait for their effective date so um, like you mentioned earlier a big spike in um, individuals who, who needed to see a doctor but maybe were hesitant to go in the other thing that happened was phenomenal was our the spike in consultations that we do so so when we when we talk about utilization and using our um, network and how we define that in terms of uh, calculating an ROI, actually showing how many people use that um, our service, we calculate the number of paid employees. So um, you have to. So an employee may have multiple dependents; they may have a spouse and, and you know multiple children. We're only going to count the the one person in those numbers. Now, every time they use the service, we we take the number of. Um, Pay dependents divide that by the number of consultations, and that gives you your overall utilization. Well, what happened was we saw a huge spike in in consults coming in. So those are actual um, consultations with a doctor where the doctor performs 
does it performs the diagnosis, and then if necessary, uh, issues a prescription. That's an actual consultation. So, kind of put things into perspective for you. We hit an all-time um, record volume for consultations in 2019. I can we imagine. Just over, yeah, I can imagine. We were over four, yeah, well, 2019. So this is prior to COVID. So we were over oh, four million consultations. Okay. Four million consultations in 2019. The biggest daily. Um, consultation volume we had in 2019 was around 10,000 consultations. Fast forward to COVID, when COVID hit, we spiked quickly to over 20,000 consultations a day. So we're on track now. So we did 4 million consultations uh, in 2019. We're tracking now to over 9 million consultations in 2020. Wow. And there's a couple of key stats in that. So one is we expanded our physician network quickly. So one of the things that we, we have um, that's really, really uh, sets us apart from any other um, provider, telehealth provider in the space is the attention that we pay to clinical quality. So just because we added, uh, we tripled our physician staff doesn't mean that we let up on the integrity and the quality of the doctors. They're all U.S board certified physicians over 20 years experience and there's a there's a lot of doctors on the bench that are that want to be on our network but we're just not taking them because we want to make sure that we're giving the doctors on our network enough consultations to make it worth their while so um so with all that going on a couple of key stats out of that one we kept our overall callback time so when a when a member calls in requests a consultation we the service standard is to for that doctor to call the, the member back within an hour. Our average callback time is still around nine minutes, which is mind boggling. So even even with that big spike to over twenty thousand consultations, we're still averaging about nine minutes on the on the callback time. I don't know um, how you, I don't know how you could do that. I yeah. mean that just seems amazing to me. That's that's I just can't even imagine the volume. I'm sorry. It, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's load balancing and it's uh, it's just the the, the software um, in our our platform to to make that happen. So it's it's we're prepared and we're and the, the crazy the crazier part about that is that um, we're actually you know we're we're tracking at nine million our our network our we've invested over sixty million dollars on our infrastructure. Because we think that number will grow, grow over twenty-five million on an annual basis very quickly, so we're we're prepared for that to happen as well, too. Yeah, I can imagine, uh, and you have to be. You have to be. I mean, I don't think anyone could have ever predicted something like this happening. You know, especially in with, with we had almost no notice. I mean, we had a little bit of notice, but we didn't really have that much notice. So it's kind of crazy. No. <laughs> well, yep. tell tell me about the uh, types of care that a telemedicine platform like Teladoc can offer to health plans, whether they're self funded or whether they're fully insured. What what can you guys offer? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and what's happened over the years is so. Um, telemedicine in general is typically been primary care physician so um, a lot of acute type of conditions uh, where you're dealing with a primary care provider the AMA estimates that over 77 percent of the times that somebody needs to see a doctor whether it's primary care urgent care or emergency room over 77 percent of those visitations can be handled safely and effectively by telemedicine so that's what we do and that's kind of the core of, of who we are uh, like you mentioned, they can go into any type of plan. It, it doesn't matter. It can be a uh, self-funded plan. It can be fully insured. It can be high-deductible plans. It can be individuals. Um, it, it's irrelevant the type of plan because we're, we're complementing that um, that person's access. What's happened, though, over the last few years, especially with, with Teladoc, is that we've really 
begun the process of broadening that scope and um, where these aren't future types of physicians or future types of services. These are services we have today that are live. So we have um, availability to pediatricians, to dermatologists, to behavioral health specialists, um, where behavioral health is uh, both psychiatrists and psychologists, and they can even offer uh, prescriptions over the um, virtual platform as well. We have um, dietitians um, who have expert medical second opinions. So as we're growing and growing, you, the kind of the buzzword right now is uh, virtual first or virtual care, and that's what we're doing. So it's not a coin that, or a term that we coined, but it's something that we're taking to the entirely different level. That anytime somebody needs to see a physician in person, in bricks and mortar, and if we can handle that on a virtual platform, we're going to do that. So it's much more uh, efficient, much more cost effective, much more convenient, uh, and just it just makes sense in today's world. Yeah, and we'll come back to a lot of those points. Um, how difficult or how easy is it to set up, and how much time is required to get it going? Yeah, you know, really, it's a great question. It really depends on the type of uh, client that we're talking about. Typical, you know, the kind of the, the bread and butter, um, whether you're going through a broker or you're going through a self-funded uh, third-party administrator, um, typical lead time is, you know, 30 days. But that being said, we can get accounts up and running, especially if we have if we have eligibility feeds set up. We can flip the switch within 24 hours if um, if the the client is set up to properly do that. Okay. Wow, that's fast. Well, many medical groups, um, independent doctors' offices, and so forth. For many of them, the immediate need for telemedicine obviously was overwhelming. I'm sure I've talked to several of them as myself, uh, just because I was curious. Um, they may not have had the technology ready to go in the early stages of COVID-19, as we as we discussed briefly just a moment ago. If health plans offered it, um, it's a standalone service, uh, generally, that the the carrier contracts with to do telehealth visits and not their normal providers. So using a service like yours at Teladoc, that's pretty turnkey, is it not? And tell me a little bit about the technology um, and how that works and it's how, how what part of a service that really is all about. And you know, kind of help us understand that this is this is not just a last minute addition. This is something that, you know, has been going on all the time and the technology is already there and, and ready to, to rock and roll. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? Uh, it, it's a great question. And um, Teladoc is, is not one size fits all. It can it can fit into multiple plan designs. So however it's built into the benefit plan design, um, we can deliver. So if it, it can be an individual that wants a one-on-one -on -one relationship and just pick up the telephone or use our app or on, our online service, but it could also be built in um, to uh, self-funded plans through the third-party administrator. We're built into uh, multiple carrier plans. Um, and then it just really becomes, at that point, it becomes how to educate the member best. So what I mean by that is the, the, the best way for a telemedicine provider to, to provide the most valuable services to educate the heck out of that member and let them know they have the service and, and we do that in a, in a very robust way the, the it's communication in terms of not just mailing out an ID card on, on the effective date but also doing email campaigns doing uh, off cycle mailers um, doing we do geo geolocating so if a member has a, the app downloaded um, and they walk into an urgent care facility or, or an airport it's going to vibrate and say hey looks like you um, or an urgent care, or it looks like you're traveling. Remember, you can use Teladoc. Um, 
we do uh, advertising on uh, social media, so Facebook, Pandora, Hulu, uh, touching that client and reminding them that they have the Telloc service. So it's a multi-pronged approach, but in the end, what it does, it actually gives our um, our members and it gives us five times the utilization that the industry on, on average has overall. Well, that's, that's great. And so they have access to an app. They have access to online portals, and they have a call center that they can access. So they can go any Correct. way they want, whether they're high tech or low tech. They can still yep still connect. Okay, that's good. To exactly, know. that's good to know. Uh, do employers who are self funded ever have issues with an independent service, knowing that their employees' uh, own doctors wouldn't be part of the care, or or is that okay? How how is that working? Yeah, that's it. You know, it really depends on the type of physician we're talking about, and when you're talking about just straight. Um, telemedicine, the kind of the 1.0 version where you're talking about um, general practitioners, we really like to, we, we don't advertise that as replacing the doctors. We, we like to say we complement doctors. So um, when the member can't get to see a physician, um, whether, you know, they're physically enabled or it's um, off hours, late night, holidays, weekends, those types of things, um, that's where we, we really like to tout that. But some of the other services we have like the behavioral health, that those are actually meant to replace the uh, provider because a there's a there's a shortage of mental health uh, professionals out there. B a lot of mental health professionals aren't even taking insurance anymore because the providers aren't um, the carriers aren't compensating them enough. And and the final one is just there's especially in rural areas there's there's just a shortage. You know you're talking thirty, sixty, ninety days to even get in to see one. So you know depending on the type of physician. Um, it it's really has not been an issue because we also we have a lot of continuity in care. What I mean by that is every consultation that uh, a member performs on the Telelock platform, we ask them, would you like to share these the consultation notes back with your primary care provider? So it's automatically built into the to the system to keep that continuity of care going. Okay. Well, does the telemedicine solution um, coordinate with the primary care physician uh, of the plan participants in a way? Um, for, I'm looking at a self-funded plan, for example. Yep. How do the medical records, how are those transferred and how does that work? And, and what's the best way that we can be assured that the transfer is secure? Yeah. So there's a couple ways to do that. So if the third-party administrator is set up properly, they'll be processing claims. So we'll, um, we'll actually process that consultation back as a claim and that comes back um, under the under the plan, so it's a in, in the the CPT codes will, will vary depending on the different type of consultation that's performed. The other way that we can actually take that to the next level is we actually start to do real time eligibility our RTE. So we set those claim feeds up, and now we're actually measuring uh, against the deductibles on a real time basis. So uh, once that that member hits their their out of pocket deductible, then they're not coming out of pocket anymore for a, a telemedicine consultation fee. That's good because that's exactly what I was going to ask you about because obviously, especially yeah. for a self-funded plan, they want to see the records. They want to see the data. I, I grew yep. up I grew up in the self-funding world so uh, and, I, and I ran a third-party administrator for, for many years. So um, I'm coming from that perspective. So I wanted to make sure that it's possible for all of that medical record to be transferred in so that, you know, the claims dollars, you know, the types of service so they can, you know, when they're capturing, you know, all that stuff for the reporting and so forth and, and looking at to make sure their out-of-pocket max has been met, their deductibles, as you mentioned, have been met, um, make sure that the stop-loss carrier has all the information in the event that claim ever were to go to a, you know, to a stop-loss carrier for a, 
a specific stop loss claim or something like that, we would have all that available. So it sounds like there are ways that that can be set up through the administrator with feeds to make sure that that will actually transfer properly. Correct. Okay, good. Uh, your product brochures, which I did take a look at, <laughs> they say in-network local physicians are available. Um, so do you contract with the plan's PPO providers uh, or is there a separate network? And I think we pretty much already answered this, but I want to make sure that people listening to this are clear on this. And is there a PPO versus a non-PPO or is it just your network or how does this work? Again, for those people that may not have the brochures in front of them like I do in front of me right now. Yeah, it's a great question, and the, the vast majority of our consultations and the way that we operate through the, we have multiple channels that through Teladoc, the vast majority of them are, are through our own network. So we contract with an independent physician networks in all 50 states, um, and that's how we have access to the doctors. So m most of the doctors are still um, in practice. They're they're logging on and, and uh, to our network on off hours and, and you know when, when they have time to, to log on. We do have a division, however, that will actually white label and work with hospitals. So they'll, they, they basically become the, the back end engine for a hospital or their hospital networks, actual, um, their own network. So they can, they keep their physicians on in their own kind of telemedicine, um, ecosystem, if you will. So there's two different ways to get there, but the vast majority are, are on our independent physician network. Which is easy to do because regardless of where you're located, since it's virtual, doesn't really matter where the doctor is located. They don't have to be on their, on their corner. They don't have to be within a five-minute drive. So yeah, yeah, you know, you know, for a couple of reasons. Well, number one, the, the doctor has to be licensed in the state where the, right. the member is calling from to, to issue in case a prescription needs to be written. And number two, we do like to uh, follow those calls to um, local physicians because they may. It, it, it's it seems it's just better consumer experience to be dealing with a, a more of a local doctor. But also, if there are something, um, some different types of situations going on from a medical um, standpoint in that community, that doctor will be more aware of that. So, um, but it, it, it's all about speed in our world. So we want to make sure that we're we're connecting somebody with a physician as quickly as possible. So if a if a member if a physician's not available immediately, right within the local area, then we'll we'll, we'll get them out and, and get them to a doctor quickly, but still licensed in the same state. And I can I would imagine this would also help in a situation where if someone's out in a remote area or something like that, they're on vacation or whatever, and, and they get sick, um, it would be pretty easy for them to connect with a, a tele you know a, a teledoc type of provider rather than you know worrying about you know finding a, a local doctor a, you know a block away yeah. from them if they're out in the middle yeah. of nowhere, you know. So absolutely, yeah. yeah. So how, um, how would a teledoc physician know about pre-existing health conditions if the patient has allergies or if they, you know, there's other important information that they need um, before they have their service for the first time? Uh, do they have access to patient records in advance of the teledoc visit? Explain to us how this works. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So the, the easiest way that I always like to explain it is imagine walking into a primary care physician's brick-and-mortar office for the very first time. You sit down, they hand you the paperwork, you fill out all the, the patient information records. So you write down your name, your height, your weight, any kind of allergies, past surgeries, everything that's filled out, and now that's part of the record. The same type of thing happens with us. So when a member registers on Teladoc, they, they have to fill out that patient information form. So they do the same thing. If there are any records, they can actually upload them into their member portal. Uh, and then prior to every call where um, that's initiated with Teladoc, 
a, a physician has to review the records just like they would. So the, the kind of the, the picture I like to paint in, in someone's mind is imagine yourself sitting in a brick and mortar doctors in the waiting room and the doctor comes outside, he picks up your file off the door, looks at the chart, reviews it for a couple minutes and then comes and knocks on the door and then comes in. Okay. And that's the same thing that's going on, but it's just on a virtual basis instead now. Yeah, that, that makes it that makes it easier to understand. Thank you for that. So if it's a self funded health plan that's purchasing a product such as Teladoc, what types of reports are they going to be receiving? Yeah, that's that's something that I'm I'm really proud of with our um, our team. They have built extremely robust um, utilization reporting that comes back. So and it's it's automated. So it's actually on a monthly basis where we can set up um, everyone on the on the chain to have that. So it could be the um, the HR uh, team at the at the actual employer group. It can be the broker, or the consultant. It can be the um, the team at the third party administrator can get on these automatic reports, but then once you're in the reports, it breaks down. So um, total number of members, um, total calls that came in, when the calls, time of the day the calls came in, what was the type of call? So we actually asked them, would you have gone to primary care? Would you have gone to urgent care? Would you have gone to the emergency room? Or would you have done nothing at all? We report that back. Um, we actually break down the top 10 diagnosis that were um, without breaking any kind of um, uh, HIPAA violations. We it, these it has to be for groups twenty five uh, lives and over, uh, but it, it it digs down very deep into the reporting, um, and that's not only on the um, general medical telemedicine. We also provide the same type of reporting on expert second opinions, on behavioral health, on dermatology. It, it breaks it all down. Yeah. So obviously, you have to transmit this information back if it's self funded to to the TPA or whoever the, it is that's processing their claims, whether it's an ASO provider, most likely would be a TPA in this, in this particular situation. Um, what type of data is transmitted to the TPA when and how often? I assume that the TPA would pay the claims just as they would any other health claim, correct? Correct, yeah, and typically it's on a monthly cycle. Okay, okay, so that when you get these reports, they get these, and I did take a look at some of your reports, they get these pretty good reports here. They've got graphics, they've got all kinds of good information. So those can be sent to the administrator and they can incorporate those then, I'm assuming, uh, into their standardized reporting then at that point, I would assume. Absolutely. Yeah, and many of them do. Okay. Uh, how is the pricing of telemedicine visits versus care in a doctor's office? Yeah, that's that's a great question as well, too. And that's um, it, it depends on how the plan is set up. So a typical um, consultation fee now on our platform is anywhere from um, – 45 to 55 dollars per consultation um, most of our plans if not all have some underlying per employee per month um, administration fee and then we we bill on on top of that the consultation fee and that can be broken up different ways so some plans choose to absorb all of it so the, the member pays zero consultation fees um, some have a, a range so the, the member may pay 10 20 30 dollars some say, no, you need to pay the entire consultation fee of that uh, $45 to $55 consult fee. So if they wanted to, they could, if they had high, for example, high copays anyway for their doctor visits, let's say they had a $50 or $75 copay for a doctor visit anyway, so saying that you're going to pay the whole thing, they don't really, it's kind of invisible to the employee, I would guess, then, that they're, they're actually paying for the whole thing. 
Um, so that's a, that's, exactly. a, that's an option to a, to an employer that's worried about cost. But I would imagine that a lot of employers would want to pay a good portion of this and just keep a, a low copay because they'd probably see savings off this. So they'd probably want to um, drive people into the telemedicine visits whenever they could. You know, that would be what I would be thinking if I were the CFO of a company. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we found. And we've had independent um, third party. We had a veracity study done a couple of years ago that um, – the kind of the argument in the industry for years was okay. How much, how much is it really going to save the plan if we if we redirect the claim? And what I mean by redirecting the claim, any time that somebody needs to go in to see a physician in person, if we take that claim on a telemedicine basis, how much are we really saving the plan? So um, veracity study crunched the numbers over two million of our lives over a two year period. Basically, what they came up with was that every time we redirected a claim, on average, we saved that plane $472. So if you kind of, if you think about that logically, it's a, um, it's kind of a blend between primary care, urgent care, emergency room costs, and now we're saving that plan $472. So it would definitely be in the favor of that employer to get as many telehealth consultations as they could. They're going to save the, the, the ROI just is exponential at that point. Yeah, it does sound like it would be a good cost savings tool. Uh, can a self-funded plan select the types of services to include in their telemedicine plan? If they were to add one, for example, if the plan doesn't cover mental health coverage, but uh, they wanted to add it for telemedicine visits only, could they do that? Could they customize the type of uh, health care that they have under their under their telemedicine platform? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Then we do we absolutely offer our services on a um, on an a la carte, if you will, basis. Um, the, and everything's built to support that. So our, our mobile apps, for example, is only going to show the services that that particular employee or employer group has um, uh, that are available to them. So um, when they log on, they're, they're only going to see I have access to a general practitioner or a dermatologist or a mental health professional or second opinion, you know, depending on what types of services their employer group is paying for. Right. Okay, good. Um, do you see telemedicine continuing strongly after COVID-19 is over? What do you see as the future? Yeah, that's a, that's another great question. And that's um, all indications are um, it's very, very wide open uh, in terms of not only in the United States, but around the world as well, too. It's a, I think we're just scratching the surface in terms of um, the Penetration not only on the general medical space, but for all the other services I, I mentioned. And, and one of the, the big pushes we're going to start having now, we're, we're actually beta testing this right now. The next big product for Teladoc is going to be a virtual primary care. So um, there's a lot that goes on with that. You get in a, in a totally different world, but it's, a, it's the next logical step for our company. Yeah. Well, we talked about this. You, you talked about this just a couple of minutes ago, but I want to come back to it because I think it's really important and I want to hit on one part of this. Can telemedicine be a possible cost savings mechanism for a self-funded health plan? Um, obviously, you talked a little bit about the differences between brick and mortar, uh, obviously, in a tele and a telehealth visit. So can you kind of get into that a little bit more and tell us a little bit more about the potential for cost savings? Yeah. the You know, one of the, the biggest things, I, I've been in the telemedicine space now for almost 13 years. Um, one of the things that I've, I've really observed over the years is that the the higher the utilization, the more you're going to save that plan uh, in terms of uh, the ROI. It's a, it's a multiples factor, you know, depending on the, the underlying PEPM cost. But typical break-even points are, um, you know, on that four to five percent 
utilization rate is where you're going to start to um, be cash flow positive. A lot of our, uh, in the, in the self-funded space in the third-party administration world, we're averaging over 25% utilization. So you can you can see how the numbers add up quickly. And one of the reasons that that, that happens is that we really encourage our clients to keep that um, consultation fee that the member's paying as low as possible. And what I've observed over the years is that basically it's kind of a sliding scale. So basically the lower the consultation fee all the way down to zero for the member, the higher the utilization. So if, if the employer group says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for all these consult fees ourselves, they're going to see much higher utilization, and then they're going to recognize much, much higher ROI and, and much lower um, claims on their overall major medical. Yeah, and that's the point. I, that's why I wanted to ask this question last, because that's the point I wanted to drive home, is that this is something, particularly in a self-funded plan, if you don't have uh, telehealth visits set up right now, um, or you were doing it just through, a, a, you know, people calling into their doctor's office and doing the best they could to get, you know, the, the care they needed, and, and they didn't really have a formal type of uh, telehealth uh, program set up, this could be a really, really good alternative for them. So that's why I wanted to kind of end with that. So thank you very much. This has been very, very informative. We really appreciate it. Um, if people want to reach out to Teladoc, how would they reach you? Uh, they can reach me at um, E. Cronengold, E. K-R-O-N-E-N-G-O-L-D at teledochealth.com. And um, I'd love to answer any questions people have. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And to everyone out there, please stay safe, stay healthy, and please take care of yourselves. And, uh, you know, we wish you all good health. And, and if you are ill, uh, please, we want you to have the most speedy recovery that you can possibly have. So please, everyone, stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3, toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.